Hi, and welcome to Content People. I'm your host, Meredith Farley. I'm a former chief product officer turned chief operating officer turned CEO and founder. My agency is called Medberry. At Medberry, we work with founders, execs, and companies who want to tell their stories and grow. But Content People is not about me or Medberry. It's about the creative leaders and professionals that we interview every week. We'll delve into their journeys, unpack their insights, and ask them for practical advice. If you like it, please rate and subscribe. I really hope that you enjoy. Let's get started. Susan, thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to get to chat with you. I'm a huge fan of you and that's Marketing Baby. I think a lot of folks coming in will know who you are, but for anyone listening who doesn't, could you intro yourself and a little bit about what you do? Sure. I'm Susan Winograd. I have been in marketing now for, oh God, I hate saying it, like 20 years. <laughs> I'm kind of primarily, I think, sought after most for paid media, but my experience actually really is in demand gen in general. I actually started in the writing, editing, and email marketing space before I made my way into the media world. So I've had my hands in a bunch of different pies at this point, and that's just what I enjoy doing. It's kind of helping fix everything at this point. So that's where I'm at. But uh, I work as an independent consultant. I do some fractional head of marketing work and I still handle paid media for clients as well. I didn't know that about your your writing, editing back in the day background. Yeah, I think it's part of the reason why Jess and I get along so well. We both write fast and edit quickly. So we've always had that in common. Yeah, I can totally see that. Okay, so I want to talk a bit about that's marketing baby and then some of the work you're doing in marketing and your thoughts on everything that's happening in the landscape right now. But before we do, a question I like to ask is that if you weren't in or couldn't work in marketing, what would you do? If money was no object, I'd probably work in animal rescue all the time. Ooh, okay. We have three dogs. We used to have three cats. I've always been a complete sucker for animals. It would probably be something like that. But if it was like, you know, along the lines of a, you know, quote unquote, serious career, I'd probably still be a writer, honestly. I've always been able to write really quick. It's always been easy for me to synthesize my thoughts in writing. And it comes very naturally to me. It's something I enjoy. So I don't know if it would be fiction necessarily or where it would be, but I would probably still somehow center around writing. Oh, that's awesome. Not answers I expected for some reason. I don't know what I expected. <laughs> I hope you weren't expecting doctor or anything similarly complicated. I would not be good at that. I'm, I'm not patient enough. No, no, that's good. So that's Marketing Baby. I absolutely love the podcast that you, Thank you. and Jessica are doing together. It's so cool. One thing I think is unique about it, you're two women in the space and you're getting really into the weeds. It's very actionable and it's really data focused. And I think that's actually pretty, really unique right now. I love it. I love listening to you guys. What made you and Jess decide to start it? Well, we were former coworkers and where we were before, we had been doing a podcast there. A lot of people have said, oh, your podcast sounds so professional. I'm like, we had practice. <laughs> we didn't just start out with That's Our Marketing Baby and kind of learn the ropes there. So when we did our previous podcast, it was just very easy. We really, I mean, we're friends anyway, but we enjoy talking with each other. We really appreciate the difference in each other's perspective and kind of what each of us brings to the table and how that fits together. So we found that once we had both left the company we were at, we really missed just talking about that stuff. And we would still, you know, slack about it and have conversations amongst ourselves. And then People mentioned, hey, we really were starting to like that, you know, the podcast you guys did and we, we miss it. And so we said, well, why don't we just keep doing it? Like, we don't really care if, if anyone listens or not. We just enjoy talking about the stuff. And one of the things that we noticed was what you mentioned was that there was a lack of tactical information in the space. And there really are not a lot of women that do it. Most of the podcasts in marketing are by men. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it was just we felt like there was a gap there. Some people might find women more approachable versus feeling like they're talking to 
you know, two guys that that their perspectives just might be different. So we thought, you know, there's probably space for this. There's probably room and desire for it. So we decided to go ahead and just, you know, sort of start throwing it together and jot down topics we were interested in. And it's done better than we, I think we anticipated. We we didn't really know if anybody was going to want to listen or not. We kind of just did it for us to, to stay in touch and trade stuff. So it's worked out great for us though. You guys do have such like a nice, easy, natural chemistry. I feel like it's certainly unique and so tactical. Sometimes when I'm listening, I pause and I'll like write things down and I'll almost have to pace myself. We love hearing that though. It's like, we'd rather it be useful. I mean, it's funny you say that because that was one of the things I've spoken at conferences a lot over the years. And it's hard when you do your own material and content because you don't really know what hits and what doesn't. It's a large group of people and they don't necessarily get feedback. But one of the things that I've heard over the years is people will come up to me after and say, I really felt like I left with stuff I could do. And I always thought to myself, well, like, what are the other sessions teaching? Like, isn't that the purpose of being here is to get ideas for doing stuff differently? So I think she and I sort of approach the podcast the same way. We're like, there's enough, you know, theoretical talking. Let's just talk about the stuff that we know we're doing every week, stuff that we've seen and created together, you know, that we know people could benefit from. Yeah, well, it's so, so useful. The episodes are so actionable. They're really focused. I also like that they're kind of short. They're like Mm -hmm. 20 to 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And was that really intentional or is that just kind of organically the type of content that you and Jess create? It's interesting that you ask that. I really think it's both. Because it's so actionable, we know that an hour is too much, right? So a lot of times we'll have a larger idea. Like right now we're, we have one that we actually turned into three different podcast episodes because it each deals with a different area of how you measure success. And so sometimes we'll have like these much bigger ideas and then realize, hey, this really needs to be broken down into three separate things or here are the different facets of this. And it's always just sort of naturally worked out that way. That's how it was when we did our our previous one together too. It always wound up being around 20 minutes and that just always felt about right. And people have mentioned the same thing. They're like, we really love the length. It's just enough. So once we got that feedback, we just kept sticking with it. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, For anyone listening who hasn't listened to That's Marketing Mm -hmm. Baby, check it out. It is so good. I love it. I'm so glad you guys are putting that out there, Susan. Thank you. We have a good time doing it, too. It's it's fun. It's like a good chance for us to catch up every week and have like a marketing cleanse. So (laughs) I do want to talk just a little bit, too, about you because the podcast was how I got introduced to you and started following you. And I'm really curious for you to talk a little bit about your career journey thus far. I know you touched on the highlights before. and how you eventually started your own consulting and got into SmartSpark. Yeah, sure. So like I said, I've been doing marketing for a long time and I feel kind of lucky because I started in e-commerce at uh, Circuit City back when they were around. So, but we were kind of the strange department that no one knew what to do with because it was the early 2000s. So we really had almost like no oversight, which was a blessing. I mean, they, they were all about the stores. So we were a very small team. No one really micromanaged what we did. So it was great because we could just kind of do and test whatever we wanted. And there wasn't really anybody there to say no. So we really ended up learning a lot about interdisciplinary marketing because there wasn't these very clearly defined lanes. So when I'd started, I had been a writer and editor for the video gaming and PC category. And then the email marketing team wanted a dedicated writer to help them start testing things. So at that point, I was a gog. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know how many people opened an email and you know what they clicked on? Like, I just thought it was so cool that there was data behind something that had traditionally just been very subjective, right? So it's like I'd write something, people like, I don't like that headline, you know, but there was never any data or something concrete to say that it wasn't okay. So I really liked the combination of the creative and the data. I've always been a very right and left brain, evenly divided person. 
So I started working with the email team and then their person that handled the retention marketing. So like the ongoing newsletters and, re you know, retention and upsells and all that kind of stuff, they had moved on and they offered me the job. So I said, sure. I mean, I was like 25. <laughs> I was in charge of like $60 million of revenue or something crazy. Like it would never happen today. But it was great. I mean, it was it was nice because, like I said, there was it was the Wild West. I mean, we built the first abandoned cart email and it took us like nine months. Right. So now you just you sign up and it automatically just works for you. So it was, it was very different. Things took a lot longer, but I learned a lot. So that was kind of where I was used to. And then there was just such a humongous demand for paid media that I started doing freelance work and I was doing project management for a small agency. And they're like, do you know anything about those ads that show up on Google? And because I'd been a writer, it was kind of this perfect blend of like keywords, ad copy, data, it had all the things I liked. So I started doing that back in 2007 on a freelance basis. And there was just so much demand for it. I mean, huge demand for it for over a lot of years. A lot of my work just wound up being there just because that's what was needed more than anything. And then I worked in-house for a home decor retailer for a while, and they were very interested in Facebook ads. And this was 20. 13, I guess. So I taught myself Facebook ads off the back of what they were trying to build. So that was my introduction to sort of the paid social space back when it was really easy <laughs> compared to what we have, you know, the past few years. And so I just kept kind of getting deeper and deeper into that. And I found it was very hard to find people that were good at paid search and good at paid social. So that wound up being a pretty huge demand point is that people kind of bring me both and not have to deal with separate people or agencies to handle that. So then I started getting asked me to speak at conferences and kind of teach what I learned. And so that snowballed into just lots of, you know, I wrote for several industry publications. I spoke a lot. I'd always kind of bounced back and forth between agency and in-house. And then I'd always pretty much had consultancy clients on the side. And I just got to the point where I was like, that's really what I enjoy. I enjoy the variety. I enjoy fixing problems. Like I'm kind of a fixer. You know, It's easy for me to look at something at a 30,000 foot point of view and say, here's why these things aren't working with your marketing. And I just found I didn't get to do that as much in-house. You know, it's like it was very much a pigeonholed role. And even in agency life, it's like that you're hired to just do this one thing. So the consulting I enjoyed more because I was finding so many places were hiring me <laughs> saying, we need to fix our paid search. And I'm like, I'd get in there and go, paid search is not your problem. You know, your problem is you don't have good email flows. You don't have engaging content. Like I find all these other problems that were contributing to what they were seeing. And so being in the consulting role, I am, I'm actually more empowered to help them fix those things. So that's how I wound up doing that. That is really cool. And Circuit City, like what a throwback, but what a really cool experience that sounds like. It was fun. When you say you built the first abandoned cart email, do you mean like you guys sent the first abandoned cart email? Well, we built the first one that Circuit City had ever had. I think up until that point, there was like maybe two or other three retailers that had done it. But you had to have like a custom coded thing. Like there was no plug and play. It just didn't exist. So we had to work with our email service provider to like hook into our database and write all this custom logic. It was crazy. I mean, it took forever. Oh, yeah, it was nuts. So it was fun, though. It's fun to look back on now and be like, wow, everybody has it so much easier. Yeah. I feel like you maybe are responsible for some of those things I've bought online. I might have been. I don't know. If you bought an Xbox 360, I probably helped. <laughs> so as you talk about it, it sounds like a really organic career path and journey to me, where it's yeah. like you had a special skill set at the right time mm -hmm. and you were good at it, you were interested in it, and just like opportunities kept popping up for you. Yeah. Did it feel very much like that? Or were there ever any moments where you're like, I don't know what I'm doing or I can't really find opportunities? What did you ever feel stuck? Times, yeah. And some of it really is more with the ebb and flow of how places have preferred to handle their marketing. So 
I mean, for it's funny now because, you know, everyone's like, email, email is the most important thing. And like for years, all we heard was email was dead. Like that's all we, you know what I mean? It's like, you're not going to need email. Everyone just buys everything on social. And so I had gotten away from email marketing then because there was just no demand for it. Right. And it made me sad because I was like, I really enjoyed so many aspects of email marketing that there were those times where I'm like, oh, I hate letting go of that as something that I do, but there's just no demand for it. Now, of course, it's all the rage again. Right. So there's ebbs and flows of that stuff. Same thing kind of happened with Google ads for a while. And I actually went through about, I think, two cycles of that. One was that there was once, you know, people figured out that it, not that it was simple, but it, it was a simpler time where it's kind of like if you just bid a penny more than the next guy, you'd win the auction, right? Like it was very simplistic. So there was a whole stretch of time for, I'd say, probably about two to three years where a lot of places were just outsourcing to the cheapest countries and contractors they could find. And so a lot of U.S.-based people that have been doing it for a long time lost that business. And it's, I can't say that I necessarily blame them because it just didn't require great marketing necessarily in its infancy. So that kind of happened there. And then Google was pretty stagnant for a few years when Facebook was on the rise because Facebook took so much of their budget. So it seemed like the demand for paid search people went down and also Google just kind of had stopped. I don't want to say they stopped innovating. I think they were busy building what they have now, but they were just very quiet for a few years with not a lot of changes, not a lot of updates. It just felt like paid search was pretty stagnant. So there really wasn't a high demand for expertise. So there's definitely those feelings that I think you go through of like, is anybody still going to need this? Is this still a thing? Is it still something I should even say that I offer or specialize in? I've definitely experienced that with a couple different things, but I've also found everything cyclical. So it eventually usually does come back. That is really interesting. Is there anything you think right now that everyone's really down on that you're like, give it two years, people, you're going to be good for XYZ? I don't feel like there's anything necessarily where people are like, this thing is dead or it's over. I think mostly what I get is there's just a lot of trepidation around how everything is kind of moving to that black box AI environment and people that have been doing it a certain way for years are very uncomfortable with that. So I feel like it's more just a discomfort at the rate of change and kind of the sea level changes that are happening as opposed to just a tweak here, a different ad format there. Like these are very big changes that have happened fundamentally in the way these things work and the way we're going to handle them. So it's really just more discomfort with that. I'm glad that you brought that up because one thing I, I know you and Jess have talked about on the podcast and I wanted to ask you about is that things are changing right now across so many platforms and data sources for marketers. Stats that we could get really easily around attribution or analytics in general are disappearing. So. From Google Analytics to Facebook Ads Manager, is there specific advice you have for marketers about how to navigate this new environment? Or like, how do you think that the changing data that's available to us might change marketing over the next several years? Yeah, I think there's a few things. So the thing about attribution is that whether you're looking at it in Facebook ads or Google Analytics, none of it was ever really real. It's the way the platforms would take credit for stuff. And they all did that in different ways, right? So it's like Facebook used to be, you know, by default, it was like, oh, I'm going to set it to the attribution to be a one-day click or 28-day view through or whatever, however you had it set up. So it was just a lens at which you look through things. It wasn't necessarily the truth, right? So Facebook would say, oh, we've driven this, you know, this thing for this cost. And that's great, but it doesn't mean that those people weren't seeing you other places. But Facebook, wouldn't account for that in their numbers. So it created this very myopic view of, from a lot of brands about how to actually build a long-term brand, how to build brand awareness. Like brand awareness got completely abandoned for many years. And people felt the repercussions of that when 
Facebook lost a lot of its data from the iOS 14 privacy update, right? So all of a sudden, all this data that used to fuel these things is gone. And so the black box that we had relied on, that we felt like we had some control over, didn't exist the same way anymore, and it couldn't produce the same way that it used to. So I feel like in some ways, we're kind of going back to how it used to be, where, you know, you'd have to buy TV commercials and then you watch and see over the following weeks, did something happen? And that's always really been more how marketing actually works, you know, more so it's, you can say this channel drove this, but there are so many things that they probably encountered your brand a lot of other times that they don't even necessarily consciously recall before they clicked on that ad and they purchased it. And so the problem we always had with the platforms was that it wouldn't account for any of that. And so the minute that you would turn off the paid media, the sales would stop. And that's not a brand, right? That's that's basically media arbitrage. <laughs> you're just you're you're figuring out how to like smartly buy media in a way that makes you profitable, which is great as long as the media keeps working the same way. But I just look at some of the stuff we used to be able to do in Facebook ads and it blows my mind. Like I'm making, you know, decks now and I'll pull up something from 2018 and I'm like, I can't believe we used to be able to do that. It's just it's crazy to me. But in a lot of ways, I feel like it's really starting to sort out who's a good marketer versus who is just a smart media buyer that, you know, could ride one channel into the ground. And, and when it worked, it worked great. You know, like I'm not going to say Facebook ads weren't great and easy back in the day. They totally were. But it's not a long term thing to build a company that has staying power. Right. It's a tactic. It's not a strategy. So there was so much movement away from strategy around how you build a company that's going to be around in five years that it sort of felt like almost like a necessary market correction, I guess, in a way where it's like you can't subsist like that forever. And especially as everyone started to realize, hey, I can put in $5 and make 50 back. That's not going to last because everybody figures it out, right? So it's like the supply and demand can't keep up. So I think what we're seeing now is there's a lot of kind of friction. I feel like it's already happened more so on the Facebook side because iOS 14 has been out for a bit now. But it definitely, you know, called out kind of who's a good marketer and understands how to take a brand long term through these types of seismic changes versus, you know, fly by night place that would just put in 50 bucks a day, make 500. And then, you know, when that data wasn't there, they stopped producing. It's sort of through a lot of that. I think it's going to be longer term. The marketers that are going to make it are the ones that understand that all these channels work together and they understand how to sort of mitigate client expectations around that. I think that that's going to be the biggest thing is marketers who can actually coach and guide clients through this. I don't see a lot of that happening as opposed to just, you know, being an expert in one channel. Thank you. That is so interesting. Do you expect that as a result of everything you're talking about, we'll see a bigger investment in things like brand or kind of like longer term content strategies as opposed to kind of the quick wins we used to be able to get? Or how do you think it might shape the way that brands try to grow? I think that brands are going to realize they have to do that. I think a lot of them are still in denial. I still, you know, have to talk with a lot of companies and CMOs and VPs where Especially, I'd say more so in the B2B world, like e-com has a much faster feedback loop, right? So with e-com, it's kind of like, you know, within a much shorter span of time, if what you're doing is working or not. B2B is a bigger challenge because the sales cycles are longer. There's things like if you're dealing with enterprise level, there's procurement that can slow things down. So there's so many other things that impact whether a deal gets signed. But I am definitely finding there's just still some denial where they're kind of like, well, what if we just spent more in paid search? Could we get more demos in the next week? And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way, right? So I feel like a lot of them don't want to hear it. They know deep down that it's true. The thing that's compounding this right now is because we're in this weird economic thing right now where it's like, everyone's like, is it a recession? Is it not a recession? I don't know. 
there are a lot of companies that are not hitting goals. So they're trying to balance like we need short term wins to keep up with where we have to be. But we also need to make sure that we're setting up the people that will become customers six months from now. And trying to do both of that, if you have a reduced budget, is very hard. There have been a lot of layoffs. So you're doing it with reduced staff, you're doing it with reduced money, but you're still trying to keep up with the short-term wins and lay the pavement for the longer ones. And it's, it's a serious challenge. I mean, it's, I empathize with the companies I work with because it's not easy. And it is easy to go back to the knee-jerk, like, how can we just get demos tomorrow? And it's like, that's not going to, I mean, even if we could, that doesn't solve your problem six months from now. You're not creating any new demand. You're just picking up what's already there. So eventually that's going to dry up, right? So you have to be able to figure out how to balance those two things. That is so fascinating. And as you're talking, I mean, correct me if you're like, no, this is a strange conclusion for you to draw, Meredith. But I feel like so much because I was in B2B marketing for so long. And always it was how can we think more like B2C marketers? Because they're so good at tuning into the audience, like Mm -hmm. really nailing that. And I wonder if actually B2C will have some things to learn from B2B in this new landscape when it comes Mm -hmm. to just as you say, nurturing a, a longer funnel. Yeah, I think Jess and I have actually talked about this before because she and I both had B2C backgrounds. And I feel like there is a lot of cross-pollination there that should happen that would make them better marketers. A lot of times, you know, B2B wants to hire people with B2B and B2C wants to hire people with a B2C background. It's like, but a lot of times having a background in both can be really helpful. So to your point, and it's, it is a, actually a very good conclusion to draw is that, you know, with B2C, because there's always been such a focus on, well, you know, this is my ROAS for this week and, you know, or this is my MER for this week or whatever it is. It's like, it's very short-term metrics, whereas like it would help probably help some of these companies if they had some like leading indicators of, are we also doing things that might produce customers three to six months from now, right? They don't really think that way. And then conversely, B2B could learn a lot about how to be human from B2C. You know, I mean, it's, it's the biggest thing with B2B is it very much relies on product marketers. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's like you have to have someone that's an expert in the product, but there's something that usually gets lost in the translation to humans, right? I've worked with so many companies where the marketing team winds up being order takers from what product marketing says has to go into the market. And it, does, it doesn't connect well, or it just doesn't do much and no one can figure out why. And it's like, because you still need an interpreter that can look at these product features and say, no one cares about the product features they care about what it's solving for them. And being able to be that mouthpiece to translate it is still a, a very lost art, I think, in, in B2B very frequently. Yeah, no, I, I agree totally. There's so much on the product front that B2B can learn from B2C. So if you're working with a company now and they're in this painful moment that you're talking about, mm-hmm. they're like, we used to be able to get demos. We used to hit our goals via this really reliable funnel with consistent metrics Mm -hmm. and it's appearing on us. Mm -hmm. How are you advising them? So a big untapped source of data I find is usually just talking to the sales team. They usually get much more direct feedback that you're not going to see in your data, right? So you could look in your data to your point and say, okay, we're seeing these metrics falling or maybe all the metrics look the same, but you're just not getting the demos. You're not getting the purchases. That's where I feel like the sales team is usually an untapped wealth of knowledge. And a lot of times it's because I feel like the input they get on why things aren't selling, either they're rolling up to a sales leadership that's like, you must be doing something wrong. You're not closing right. You're not asking the right questions. Or they're trying to give this feedback, but it's somewhat anecdotal, right? They'll be like, I didn't get this deal because they said X. But there's not anybody looking at the larger patterns of like, okay, this other company this guy was talking to 
What was their reason? Was it the same? There usually isn't pattern recognition with that. So a lot of times what I'll try and figure out is talk to the salespeople and be like, are you getting different questions than you used to? Are you getting different objections than you used to? Or is, is there an objection you used to never get like price or contract time or something that like now it seems to be an issue, right? Might not have been before, but economic pressures, whatever it might be, are you getting, are you starting to see patterns of why people aren't signing? So usually I'd like to try and find the root of the problem first, because otherwise you're going to waste so much time and money <laughs> trying to like, maybe we just need to test different messaging. And maybe we, and it's like you're trying to fix something that let's say, you know, if the problem is everyone's like, it's just they don't have the budget and they're having trouble getting anything approved. That's much different than being like, oh, our message is just stale and our competitor sounds more interesting. Right. So that's the kind of stuff that bottom of funnel feedback that you have to take back to the top to say, OK, so. In our marketing push now, maybe we need to talk about what's the cost if you don't use this thing, right? It's like, how much does it cost you to do these things manually versus us automating it? So you have to kind of draw back what is causing those, I don't want to say failures, but that reduction in what you're seeing. What are the main reasons that might be happening? And then taking that back to the start of when you're creating the demand to begin with to make sure you're addressing that. So the, otherwise, they're getting all the way through this process and or you're still paying for the media and they're just not turning into anything. That sounds like such great, valuable advice. As you're talking to, I was thinking about how complex it can be like to do that well in that talking to the sales team who might have their perspective on the types of blockers, conversations that they're having, and then sifting through that and then sifting through like, all right, you know, to your point, it's like, are we just stale? And is there an aspect of the product or a feature that's stale or is it the branding and the value props around the product? There's just so many different moments where it's kind of like sifting and sifting and sifting to arrive at the right conclusion. And I think for so many organizations, it can be so challenging to set up the teams and the dynamics in a way that allows that to actually happen the way it needs to. Agreed. And they also don't usually have the patience for it either because it does take time, right? So I think also part of it is you know, departments are incentivized different ways, right? So a lot of times they're not, even though obviously it's like, yes, the North Star is revenue. Okay, great. But that's broken into different day-to-day -day metrics by department. And sometimes they're not mutually compatible, right? They're Sometimes they're competing against each other. Is that type of work that you do in part of your consulting, would you be interviewing the sales team and helping to sift through this? Or is it something that you're kind of advising teams to approach themselves? Typically, it's something they're going to have to approach themselves just because there are so many things that are involved in setting, like, why are the sales quotas the way they are? Why, you know, it's like, I, and it just gets to be so in-depth that unless you're someone that's like contracted to work with them for six months to a year to clean out all that plumbing and figure out where the breakdowns are. It's very hard to do it within the context of being like a hired gun for the marketing side, right? Like I might find some things where I'm kind of like, well, marketing is just incentivized to get leads. They're not incentivized to get SQLs, right? So you can sometimes find quick wins where you're kind of like, hey, these two things aren't the same. And so I'd recommend that you're incentivizing them the same way, like that they have to do this. But unless it's something that's very obvious like that, sometimes it can be really hard to uncover why things are the way they are or why they wound up that way because it involves so many different departments that I don't even wind up talking to. Yeah. Like as you were talking through that process, I was starting to feel a little stressed, even though I have absolutely no reason. I'm like, oh gosh, it's going to be it's a big challenge. So to maybe zoom out a little bit, you've worked with companies of all shapes and sizes. And I'm curious as to what you'd say, what are the most common mistakes that you think businesses make in their digital marketing strategies? How can they avoid them? I really think the brand awareness is a big one. I feel like it's more so with paid media they do this. 
but they ascribe the same goal to everything they do. So it's like, if it doesn't produce a demo, they automatically are like, it's not worthwhile. Or if it doesn't produce a sale right then, it's not worthwhile. That was just so conditioned because of how easy and quick paid media used to be. And it was cheaper. So it's like you can spend more and get a lot more. So I feel like a lot of companies don't look at these different channels and tactics with the nuance they need to evaluate if they're good or not. And that was one of the reasons Jess and I just done recently an episode about how do you measure success short term, right? So if it's something where it's like it takes six months for something to become a sale from a demo, how do you know what to do in between that, right? Like you can't just sit and wait six months and be like, oops, that didn't work, right? There are guideposts that pop up along the way as to whether you're on the right track. And so many companies don't have the patience for those because like, well, yeah, but it didn't get a demo. It's like, okay, but it's showing that we have the right people that will eventually become one. So I just feel like there's so many instances where companies don't think further out than the next 30 days. Like they're so beholden to that 30-day quota that they never think about what they're doing to make subsequent 30-day chunks easier, you know, right? So it's like six months from now, how can, what can we do today to make this easier so we're not sweating bullets because it's the 30th of the month and we haven't hit quota, right? I feel like that's the biggest issue that I run into at almost every company. And then inevitably towards the end of the month, they're like, here's a whole bunch of money, like go bid more in paid search. And I'm like, that is not going to solve your problem. You know what I mean? It's half the time I'm like, this isn't even something somebody searches for, right? Or if they do, they're an SMB and you guys cater to enterprise, right? And that's always the challenge is it's like, there's still this over-reliance, I think, on the tactic piece and not a lot of acknowledgement in the fact that a lot of humans market for you. I mean, if you go on Twitter or LinkedIn and you're dealing with something B2B, most times people are like, hey, what's everyone using to do? Blah, right? And then there's like a hundred and some comments of people recommending companies and vendors that do it. That's how a lot of B2B happens. And that's never accounted for in plans. There's still this denial that that's important, but that's just all brand awareness. That's just putting in the hard work that takes a long time. And no one wants to do that. They want to make it, they want to hit the easy button. Yes. I think that things like some of the metrics and the signposts that, okay, we're on the right track from a strategy perspective are so, I mean, I'm sure it's not like I'm drawing any like genius conclusions here, but there's just so much fear and yes. the quins that will give you a bit of short-term security, even though it's not serving your longer-term goals, it's not even getting the right clients that are going to stick around. At least the business hit its quota for the month and yes. they like fight another month. Like yep. folks stuck in that fighting mode. And yes. You know, but things like, you know, brand awareness, I feel like take it's almost an emotional, like it takes a bit of faith that like it does. Absolutely. It does. And I think that's the hard part, too, is because marketing, it is an art and a science, right? Yes. So there it's like you everyone wants to really over index on the science side, which I get because it's and I mean, I, like I said, I'm I'm a right and left brain person. I'm right in between. So the faith part can be hard. And I think that's, you know, you get you see a lot of public fails with that, right? Where You'll have some like, you know, JCPenney hired the guy from Apple and it went spectacularly terrible, right? I mean, it's just like you. there are companies that do take those big leaps of faith and they make wholesale changes and they don't work, right? And all that does is reinstill the fear of like, see, like, you know, we tried to do something that was a little more cerebral and it didn't work. I get why. I mean, it, it is scary to kind of have to scribe 
all this faith and all of this money and all of these things to something that might not work, right? And it could might take a while and a decent chunk of change to figure out that it doesn't work. But unfortunately, that's just the way it's done. But it's like you said, it's like when people don't even look at the guideposts, that creates a problem. So if a business was willing to do six months to 12 months of heavy lifting for the brand building, for the longer pipeline of the ideal client, and they were willing to like put in the money without the immediate quick wins, what are some things you'd be like, all right, great, here's some stuff you can do? Yeah, I think the first thing they have to understand is the content and the problems that they're helping people solve. Too many times, you know, at companies, they're like, oh, our product does this. I'm like, no one cares. They want to know that you understand what they're going through every day. And any advice or information you're giving them is not self-serving. So you just need to endlessly provide value and be a resource for them. And then you naturally become a trusted source of whatever your thing is. If you're constantly telling people how to, you know, make the perfect paid social creative and you're not requiring them to sign up for your platform to do it, you've built a ton of goodwill. You've proven that you know exactly what you're talking about. They come to you for that information anyway. And it shows them you're like, you know, if they built this thing, it obviously must address all this stuff really well because they know this world very, very well. So, you know, and it's like that way with consumers too. Like consumers have gotten wise to to BS about, you know, e-com products, but it's becoming that way in B2B too, where it's like you can't just gate something behind an email capture and say it provides all this value and have people blindly say, yeah, sure, here's my email. I'll take a five-page report. People just don't trust that stuff anymore because it got abused. So you have to be very willing to set aside some of the things that you used to kind of earmark as a success and be willing to just give away a little bit more than you used to, I think would be my way of putting it. But the best way to do that really is to produce things that are valuable. I mean, whether that's content webinars, how-to instructions, anything that lets those users know that you understand where they're at, then it it's, makes it so much more seamless for them to believe that you've created something that would help them long-term. So really, really understand your audience and their mm -hmm. problems and yep. then invest a stomach-churning amount of <laughs> time and money yeah. to content that serves them for free. Yep, yep. And just be aware that you're probably going to have to pay to amplify it. <laughs> Because social reach is not wonderful at this point. So when your paid media person is like, yes, we need to spend some on sponsored content, don't start evaluating it on whether it drives demos. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is to make sure the right people are seeing the helpful content you've created. So you also just kind of have to reframe anything that you then take forward using that for. You have to reframe the metrics you're using to judge it. All right. That, thank you. That's really, really valuable. And it makes a lot of sense. Susan, thank you so much. Is there anything that I didn't ask about that maybe you would have wanted to share in the convo? Not at all. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, folks. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe or review us. And if you want to check out our newsletter, Content People, it is in the show notes. See you next time. Bye.